How can the God of heaven and earth, the triune God, be a friend of sinners? Who's holy, whose eyes, Habakkuk tells us, are too pure to look upon iniquity, but who draws near to the broken and contrite heart. He's done that and does that in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at him and look to him. And from Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 14 to 16. Our great and sympathetic, you could also add the word sinless, high priest. That's the title of the sermon. As we are looking at the book of Hebrews, we're seeing that that Jesus is better. He's better than all that's come before him. He, he, he's better than all competitors. He, he's better in that he is the final word of God to the church in these last days. He is God's word to us today. He is this faithful high priest, a great high priest, who has come for us to take away our sins. You see, the church there that the writer is addressing is in danger of, of falling away. It's becoming very difficult. Right, We sit here very comfortably. I hope you're comfortable this morning. It's about 73 degrees or so in here. Sometimes it seems a little hotter. But the church that they're writing to does not sit in such comfort. They're being taxed. They're being oppressed. They're being scorned because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're considering whether to go back to Moses, go back to that which is familiar, go back to the, to the status quo, go back to the the religion that Rome has recognized there in the first century, right? Just to escape, right? Just to get away, right? Just like the commercial, I need to get away. You see, they want to get away. They, they want to put it all down. They don't want to struggle anymore. They don't want to, to battle the flesh, the world, and Satan anymore. They, they want to, as it were, they want an easy way out. And the writer writes to remind them there is no easy way out, right? There is none, right? We take up our cross and follow the crucified Savior, lest we don't enter God's Sabbath rest, right? He gives them this warning with an encouragement. Luther says about the text before us as he thinks about the encouragement that God brings in this very familiar text is after terrorizing us, he now comforts us. You see, he comes and brings a word of encouragement, right? By considering Jesus, our high priest, that he's spoken of briefly in chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 1. Now he's going to begin to expound on this great theme that's going to consume the rest of the book through chapter 10, Christ, our great high priest. So let's pick up reading in verse 11, and we an infallible word. Therefore let us strive, make haste to enter that rest, that rest that yet remains, that Sabbath rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, that is the disobedience of the Exodus generation who died in the wilderness. Why? Because the word of God is living. And it's active. It's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, or therefore, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is 
unable to sympathize or to show compassion with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tested, tempted, and tried as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, therefore, with confidence, with with boldness, draw near to the, the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need and in this time of trial and temptation, lest we fail to enter God's formal rest, the future rest, you see. He's speaking to the church, and he he wants the church to see those dead bodies lying there in the wilderness. But the word of God has come in judgment and judged them because it's living and active. But he has better hopes and aspirations for the church. Since, therefore, we have such a high priest, how can you go back? How can you give up on Jesus? Right? Where are you going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? You see, he is the high priest who ever lives for you, to make intercession for you, who's made peace with God. This God from Leviticus 16, that's so difficult. It's so exacting. Did you notice that as Mr. Hutton was reading? Right? It's so persnickety. So pedantic. You have to be holy to enter his presence. Holy, you have to be perfect without blemish in thought, word, or deed. No sin, not one sin can come before his eyes. So how are you going to get into his presence? Well, beloved, the captain of our salvation has gone into his presence. He's entered in for us. Let us fix our minds on him. You see, that's what he's trying to convey to the church there, and that's what I want to convey to you, to convey what he conveyed to them. Because it's just as relevant, it's just as pertinent today. It's just as existential for us, right? Some of you are are wavering. You're thinking, I don't know if I can continue, right? What trial awaits me, right? What's before me? What's God going to ask the church here in America to go through in the next 10 to 20 years? Men do not know. I don't know. But God knows. And God is using the book of Hebrews to prepare us to fight the good fight, to to persevere in him who loved us and gave himself for us. This one who is our high priest, that we wouldn't give up. Right? We're going to finish the race. We're going to run so as to win it. By God's grace. Because we're going to go to the throne of grace in our time of need. We're going to find mercy to, to forgive us of those past failures, of temptations. And we're going to find grace to empower us to go on to tomorrow. We're not going to live Tuesday before Sunday's over. We're not going to live Monday before today's over. We're looking to Him each and every day for, for daily grace to be sustained in this great race, this great pilgrimage as we go to heaven. You see, we're a people of destiny. The Sabbath rest yet remains for us. You see, this is all that He's trying to do in exhorting us Let's pray and ask this blessing now as we go before him. Because we need him. You don't need me to give you another bunch of data. We need to meet with God. We need God, church. Let's pray and seek his face. Oh, our Father, we come before you. 
Lord, I, I need you. Oh, how we need you. Our precious Lord Jesus, we need you every hour. In this hour, bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart. Lord, that we would know something of the reality of Christ ever living intercession for us, even in this hour, in this moment, that he prays for us. The five bleeding wounds, they, they strongly plead for us in heaven. Oh, Father, be glorified. Enable us to make much of you, to humble ourselves before this holy word and before your holy presence. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The preacher, as I've mentioned, has given some strong admonitions and warnings about the, about the dangers of not pressing on in Christ. He, he's also given some encouragements, has he not? He, he's given us some means, right? We're in the wilderness, church, right? Let's all, yes, Pastor Bullock, we're in the wilderness. Yes, this is not our home. America is not the kingdom of God. If you think that, you have any delusions about that, you come and you talk to me. And I'll take you to the 6 o'clock news and show you. Empirically, right? We're not home yet. We're in exile. But we're not in exile as orphans. We're in exile as children. We have the Holy Spirit. Right, church? It was for our benefit that the Son of God go away, that he might give his Holy Spirit, that he might be our holy comforter, our paraclete, one like himself, would come and be with us wherever we are, right, corporately, but also individually, Right, when we go to the various spheres and various vocations of our lives, right? we go together, but we also go individually. And God goes with us. He's Emmanuel. The Holy Spirit's with us. Right? So he's given us means. He's given us biblical fellowship, as we've seen from chapter 313. Exhort one another every day, as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We've said over and over again, it's, it's a team sport. Perseverance is a team sport. We're in this together. I am my brother's keeper. We're all on the battlefield, right? One's wounded. What am I going to do? Am I going to leave that man behind? No, I'm not. We leave no man behind in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pick up the wounded and we help them get to where they need to get to, right? To get the attention, the, the, the medicine, the means of grace that they need. We've also seen that in chapter 4 that the observance of the Lord's Day it is a very important part as we anticipate God's final rest. Here's this gift we have 52 times a year, and how many of us are not taking advantage of it, right? We're not regarding it as holy as unto the Lord, not considering the, the Sabbath day as a delight, as a day to lay down the worldly cares and all the busyness and just lock in on our eternal destiny and our God of our eternal destiny, the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. We've also seen in chapter 4.12 that the word of God has been given to us, right? I've, I've hidden your word in my heart, Father, that I might not sin against you. Your, your precepts give me wisdom. They're my counselors day and night, right? I, I don't know what to do. But I'm going to seek you as for hidden treasure. And I'm going to find you because your word says, those who seek me shall find me. And I'm going to hold you to your promise, Father, that you're going to be God to me. 
and you're going to show yourself to me, and you're going to reveal which way I should go, to the right or to the left, that I would be able to discerning right from wrong. And I might please him, right? Because I'm learning how to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because discipleship is more than just something we do on Sunday. No, it's 24-7, it's 365, we're locked in, we're locked on, right? And it waxes and wanes in our commitment. But you know what's so beautiful? His commitment never waxes. It never wanes. He never slumbers nor sleeps. From whence comes our help? Our help comes from the Lord, right? Maker of heaven and earth, right? So we have his word. Now here in chapter 4, 14 to 16, we have a third resource. Prayer through our great high priest, our sympathetic and sinless high priest. So this morning I want to look at the text under two questions, just two questions. What kind of high priest do we have? What kind of high priest, right? This is foreign language to most of us. We don't, we don't deal with high priest. Right? How many of you know anything about a high priest other than the Bible? Well, you don't, right? What we know about a high priest is from the word of God, right? One who mediates a go-between, one who intercedes on our behalf, kind of like a defense attorney. If you, you get a speeding ticket, say you're driving reckless, you're going 21 miles over. You know what you're going to get in your mailbox within a few days? Mr. Mahan knows. What are you going to get? You're going to be inundated with letters saying, I can help you. Well, who's going to help me? All these defense attorneys. Because they can identify with you. They know what happens in the courtroom. Right? Some of you, unfortunately, know what I'm talking about. Right? I've been in the car with some of you. I know. You know. You've been in the car with me. My wife can testify. The only reason I don't have a reckless driving ticket is because, not because I haven't gone 20 miles over, is I haven't got caught. The blue lights, they come up on you and go whoop, and you go, whoa. But so many of us think we can go before a civil magistrate just on our own merits, right? I'm going to go. I'm Mr. Fender. I can go, and I can make an articulate, informed argument about why the judge should, you know, bump it down. As it were, or drop it down just to, you know, speeding. And that's how this works. In some ways, that's another sermon, another story. It, just, it seems a little rigged to me. You almost have to have the, the paid professional attorney to get you off of the reckless driving. And yet, how many of us, ironically, just think, well, I'll just go right on into God's presence? You would never do that to the civil magistrate here in Henrico County or city of Richmond. You never go down to Marshall Street and just kind of bump in. Who, who am I? Does he know who I am? Oh, no. No. What is that? What's a civil magistrate? A clay jar with a brain. How foolish. Isn't it foolish? Yes, it's foolish. And yet we do that before God. We think we can just come into his presence. So what kind of high priest do we have? Secondly, then how should we respond to this high priest that God has given us? So first, what kind of high priest do we have? Again, the writer has been exhorting us to persevere, lest we fail to enter God's rest. Right? So first, Christ is a great high priest. You see that word great? It's the word from which we get our word mega. 
Like Megabus, you know, down here by the train station on Main Street, those blue buses that go all the way to D.C. and New York but take you there for like $39. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. But you see him. Mega. He's a mega high priest. He's not just high priest like Aaron, right, and those who come before him in the Old Covenant. He's mega. He's the great high priest, right? Unlike Aaron, Christ has stood in the sinner's place at the cross, and he now stands as the, as the sinner's advocate, as the defense attorney in the very presence of God. He represents us before God. He's your argument before God, church. He's your plea. You need no other argument. You need no other plea. Right? You know the hymn. Susu knows the hymn. He's your argument. Christ, your advocate, he represents us. 1 John 2, 1 to 12, 1 to 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, because John knows that you will sin. I know that you will sin. I know that I will sin. We have an advocate. We have a defense attorney with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He, he's the one, unlike the blood of bulls and goats there, in chapter 16 of Leviticus, the blood that couldn't take away my sin, Christ has brought holy blood, human blood, into heaven. He didn't enter the copy of the tabernacle or the um, tabernacle or the temple. Rather, he entered into heaven itself. Did you notice that? He entered in, passing through. You see, he's paid sin's debt before God for us. The very thing that the blood of bulls could not do. You see, we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens. You see, he's, he's gone behind the veil. Right? That veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holy place. Right? As, as you would think about the, the temple courts, right? The concentrically, there's the outer court. There's the holy court. And then there's the holy of holies. Right? And the veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. We're told that Christ entered into the holy of holy place. You see, the, the curtain has been torn. He's entered into heaven itself. He's, he's passed through the heavens. Aaron never passed through the heavens. Aaron was a man who had to make a sacrifice for his own sins and a sins for the people. Where Christ enters into this holy place and represents us before God. We're also told of his greatness is seen in his name. Notice his name there. It's mentioned together. He's, he's Jesus. Who is he? He's Jesus. He's the man, the God-man. The one whom the angel Gabriel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. You know why? Well, you know what Jesus means? The Lord saves. The Lord saves his people. He, he's going to save his people. He's the son of God, right? Not only is he fully man, he's fully God. He's very God of very God. He's begotten, not made. He's of one substance with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You see, we're, we're Trinitarian as Christians. We believe in one God, right? The Father who begets, the Son who is begotten, and the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's vital that we understand this. 
That's what separates us. We're not just monotheistic in this vanilla, bland way. No, we're Trinitarian. There's one God, but this one God is this perfect community before creation began who needed nothing, who depended on nothing, who only went with creation because he wanted to go public with his glory. The Father was loving the Son, and the Son was loving the Father, and the Holy Spirit was proceeding from the Father and the Son. As Donald McLeod would say, it was the perfect neighborhood, these three persons of the one God. It's mysterious. I don't know exactly how to explain it all. But it's one God who exists in three persons. And Jesus Christ took upon himself our humanity, he who was of the same substance with the Father. See, throughout Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is the deity. He is God. Chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus told the disciples, if if you've seen me, you've seen God. Right? Young people, you're asking, what is God like? (laughs) Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. There is God. God incarnate in the flesh. But if he's so great, right, if, he, if he's this God-man pastor that you speak of, if he's fully God and fully man, if he's so transcendent and so glorious and, and so lofty, whose eyes are too pure to look upon iniquity, who lives in the highest heavens, and the earth is his footstool, if he's so grand, if he's so glorious, can he relate to me? Right? How, how can this transcendent one Come to me in, in this eminent frame of life, of existence that we live in. Well, that leads to the second point, right? He, he's a sympathetic high priest. He's a gracious high priest. He's, he's merciful and compassionate to sinners. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, we have a high priest. <laughs> now we're told we don't have one, though, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Literally, this word is sympatheo in the Greek. It means to be touched, afflicted with the feelings of another. It means to suffer alongside. Someone who can suffer with you, who, who suffered with you already, who, who can identify with you in this exile existence. You see, beloved, the friend of sinners, the, the sinner's advocate sits at the Father's right hand. And though he's great and having passed through the heavens, he's ever near the cries and weaknesses of his people. You see, our Savior not only put on flesh, but he also put on our infirmities. And one of the things we must guard against here is defining this solely in psychological terms, right? That he, he gets my feelings. Well, yes, but remember now the context. The author's writing to Christians who are thinking about calling it quits. Forsaking Christ and going back to their everyday existence. Back to Moses. And he's saying you can't do that. Because Christ is a sympathetic high priest. He's the priest who's passed through the heavens. Who's entered into heaven itself. Not the copy in the tabernacle in the temple. No, he's gone into heaven with his own blood. And he's propitiated for your sins. He's satisfied the condemnation that your sins deserve. 
He's paid in full the price that was due. He knows what it's like to live a human existence. He knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like to be thought less of. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He can sympathize with you. He can come alongside of you because he's been where you are. You see, that's what he's saying. In our griefs and our sorrows, you see, as the incarnate Lord, he's, he's touched by our weaknesses, by our fears, by our sorrows, all the temptations that beset you. Not exactly, but in, in kind, right? He, he knows what it's like to have the temptation of an unlawful thought, right? He knows what it's like to maybe doubt God's providence. Well, Father, if, if it be any way possible, let this cup pass, but not my will, but your will, you see. He always brings every thought in submission. He never had an evil thought. He never had an evil deed or, or evil act. Matthew Henry says this, He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities and in such a way as no one else can, for he himself was tried with, with all the afflictions and all the troubles, not only that he might be able to satisfy for us, but to sympathize with us. Right? Are you lonely this morning? Right? It's systemic in our culture. Isn't it irony? There's so many ironies in our day and age, in this technological age, with all this communication we have. We've never been able to communicate faster with more people in any one moment. And yet, we've never had more systemic loneliness than we have right now. People are lonely. I'm here to tell you Christ was forsaken. All abandoned him in that hour. There was no one, even Peter, who boasted of a good game, right? But at the end, a little girl said, hey, I think you're one of them. I think you're a follower of this Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, not me. Where'd all this bravado go? Where'd all that theology go? Well, it left like a cheap tent. It folded, right? But we're told that Christ prayed for Peter. That's why he wasn't completely forsaken. Christ understands and sympathizes with our weakness. But you think to myself, think to yourself, right? He, he, he sympathizes with us. He, he suffers alongside us, but can he do anything about it, right? Calvin says this, Christ undertook our weaknesses not only to attain the victory over them for us, but also that we may feel assured that he is present with us whenever we are tried by them. You see, he's not only willing, he's able. You see, it's one thing to suffer along somebody, Come alongside, but can this person help us? And the Word of God tells us Christ can help us. Listen to Philip Hughes. What we have, and the first readers, first readers of Hebrews needed, was not a fellow loser, right? <laughs> it's the race to the bottom in our culture today, right? Everybody's a loser. But a winner, not one who shares our defeat, but one who is able to lead us to victory. Not a sinner, but a Savior, He's the great high priest who's able to sympathize with you. Thirdly, he's Christ, our sinless high priest. He's great, he's sympathetic, and now we see that he's sinless. One who in every respect we're told there in 15b has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, when Christ came, he came to go to war. (laughs) 
He was a warrior at birth. He came to go to war against the devil and the world and sin. Chapter 2.14, he came that he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. After his baptism, Christ was driven into the wilderness and tempted by Satan for 40 days. Hell's fury was brought to bear against him. At Gethsemane and at the cross, mocked and scorned, if you are the Son of God, come down and save yourself that we might believe. But he did not come down. He endured to the end. And beloved, do not think for a moment that just because Christ did not have a sinful nature, that his temptations and sufferings were less than ours. Nothing could be further than the truth, from the truth. The Son of God, sinless, did not make temptations easier, but all the harder. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He captures this perfectly. Lewis, talking about Christ's humanity and the power of temptation over a sinless man. Listen to Lewis. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like in an hour. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in to temptation. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Lewis says he's the only complete realist. You see what he's saying? It was all the harder for the Son of God. But who for the joy before him endured it for you? That he might be your sympathetic, great, and sinless high priest. You see, he never wavered. He was without sin. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our great, sympathetic, sinless high priest. Well, this leads to the the second point this morning. The second question. How then should we respond to this great, sympathetic, sinless high priest? There are two ways, two imperatives in the text. Verse 14, notice what it says there. Hold fast. Hold fast. Our confession. Notice what he says. Since then, therefore, right, we have a great high priest, such a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, right, Not a tabernacle as a copy, but through the heavens, Jesus, who now sits at God's right hand, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast to our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, remember the context. These professing believers were in danger of drifting away. They were in danger of returning to the shadows of the old covenant. But rather than letting go of Christ... He exhorts the readers, that is the author, and he exhorts us, we must lay hold of Christ. Literally, it means to to seize Christ, to adhere to Christ. And it's in a present tense, meaning it's not just something you did, right? Josie and Noah love them. They came up and they professed their faith today. Great. They must continue to profess their faith. They must continue, just like all of us who've made public professions of faith, 
We must continue to adhere. We must continue to seize the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the imprint here. That's what's going on, right? Well, the author knows, right? He knows. He's a realist. He knows that the life of faith is not an easy one. He knows there are many difficulties in life, right? Acts 14.22. It's, it's through many difficulties that we enter the kingdom of God. And I always found that very strange as I, as I preach that, right? In very similar texts, right? Those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I sit here and I say that in this nice shirt and tie, this nice coat, well-fed, little overweight, stomach full, and I thought to myself, I don't know anything about this. Persecuted? Well, yeah, perhaps mocked. Yeah, scorned, right? You go into a, um, a social party, social gathering. It's amazing how this happens. I go at Christmas and go visit people. And, you know, there's just strangers trying to be all nice and classy and so forth. What do you do for a living? I'm a minister. That's what they do. Okay, whatever. So be it. Right? What is that, though? How does that compare to my brothers and sisters in Somalia? Right? Or Ethiopia? Or North Korea? Or Yemen? Right? Who, whose wives are being abducted and their children are being taken and sold into slavery? I know very little of this. But the church he's writing to knows something of this. And maybe one day we might know something of this. And God is giving us tools today in the book of Hebrews to help us to be prepared for that day, if that day arises. But maybe it might not be so stark in your life. Maybe it'll be just at work. People will ask you, why are you so at home with with what's going on in the world? Why aren't you like everyone else, so crazy and, and loony about all that's happening in the world? And you can give an answer for the hope that's within you with gentleness and respect, right? Because you've set Jesus Christ as Lord a part in your heart, and you might give an answer. You might be able to testify to Christ. Right? They might accept it, they might not. But you want to be faithful, you see. That's why we must hold fast to this confession. Right? Because the world is difficult. Jesus in Matthew 7, For, gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. Right? The, the way to hell... Is downhill and it's wide. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The believers in Hebrews knew this firsthand how they're going to finish the race before them the same way you are, the same way I am, by, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the captain and perfecter of our faith. We must consider him who endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, not only must we seize Christ, not only must we hold fast to him, notice what he says, this second imperative there in verse 16. The second way we are to respond to Christ is by drawing near to the throne of grace. It's, it's a call to pray, right? He, he's calling these Christians who are struggling, right, who is, are contemplating apostatizing, notice what he says, verse 16, let us then with confidence, with boldness, frankness, draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, beloved, we no longer come to God through types and shadows, 
only once a year. But we come to Christ, we come to God through Christ, who's passed through the heavens, who, who now sits in the, blo- the glory and the splendor of heaven. You see, Christ is seated in heaven. And the throne upon which this great high priest, who's sympathetic and sinless, is a throne of grace. But I'm afraid so many of us live as though we're exiled from the throne of grace, right? We, we live in fear. We forget it's a throne of grace, right? We understand it's a throne of judgment, right? We read the, the verse just before it in verse 13, right? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, bone and marrow, right? All these things. And then he goes on, he says, and we must give account to this God before whom we serve, right? We're all going to stand before God. And that, some of us, that's not a very pleasant thought, right? So we don't see the throne of grace as a throne of grace. It's a throne of judgment, a throne of condemnation. But, but he tells us here that it's a throne of grace. So your doubting heart tells you this morning, God could never receive me. And, and without the mediation of your advocate, Your defense attorney, Jesus Christ, you're right. He will not receive you, cannot receive you. But in Christ, he will and does and gladly so receive you. You see, your prayers will always be heard by him, even if they're poorly constructed, right? So you haven't memorized a shorter catechism. You haven't read Matthew Henry on corporate prayer. Maybe you can only do what the man who went in the temple who was the the publican, the tax collector, who, who all he could do was beat his breast and couldn't look up and ask God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe that's all you can do. <laughs> and you know what? What's so beautiful about the gospel? That's all you need. All you need is desperation. All you need is faith to look to the one who sits on this throne, this throne of grace, your high king, your priest king, Jesus Christ, Right? Nothing is required of you except your need of him. Not your works, nor your obedience. You simply come. So this morning, take your eyes off yourself and place them upon Jesus. He's generous in spirit, overflowing with kindness. Calvin says, the throne of grace is not arrayed in bare majesty to confound us, but is adorned with a new name, grace, which ought to be remembered when our hearts and guilt overwhelm us. To free our minds from all fear and trembling, he adorns his throne with grace, giving it a name which can allure us by its sweetness. Oh, 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 the theologian of the Holy Spirit, he gets it, doesn't he? He understands the benevolence of God, the kindness of God, the love of God for him. You see, beloved, we can come without fear as children to a loving father, for he's ever propitiated toward us, right? We come by invitation of the king, the mediator. Our only grounds to come is Jesus Christ. That's why we come with confidence, the confidence that's found in him. See, the world tells you to look within, but the word of God says, Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but the gospel says, look without, look to Jesus Christ. Take your eyes off your own obedience, over your own resume and pedigree, and look to Christ. You see, friends, God knows you come in weakness. He knows you come in half-hearted obedience. 
He knows all the mistakes you've made. He knows your best works are still polluted with sin. He knows that even the strongest faith is mixed with unbelief. Yet he calls you to come to draw near. And again, it's in the present tense. You keep drawing near. <laughs> right? Your heart's condemning you. Well, I'm going to pray. I'm going to offer a sacrifice of praise. I'm not going to believe my own heart. I'm going to doubt me for once and believe him. I'm going to doubt my experience. I'm going to doubt my unbelieving heart, and I'm going to hold him to his word. That if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. He's made that promise. He's wrote that check, and I'm going to cash it to the throne of grace. I'm going to take it to him. God, this is what you said. You're not a man that you should lie. Lord, this is who you are. You've given an oath. You, you've sworn by your own name. You've sealed that oath, not in the blood of bulls and goats. You've sealed it in the blood of your precious son. How much more can he say than to you he has said, church? Right? He's always arguing from the lesser to the greater. If he did not withhold his own son, will he also with him not also give you all things? What's he going to withhold from you? Right? As you're his child in Jesus Christ. He bids you to come, to come in your need, right? You're coming to a king with large petitions bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask so much or too much. Beloved, it's this access to the throne of grace our high priest has given us that enables us to press on in our pilgrimage to heaven, to press on to the Sabbath rest that yet remains, for the people of God. If we're going to be overcomers, not succumbing to the passing pleasures of the world, we must come boldly to the throne of grace. We must come daily, hourly, considering this high priest, Jesus Christ. In our need, in our opportune time, he gives grace, he gives mercy. Mercy to forgive you for all those failures that you had this week, right? And you're going to have. And grace to empower you to walk with renewed obedience, right? We leave here every Sunday renewed, strengthened with grace to press on in him who loved us and gave us self-form. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he loves us. Not only did he love us in the fullness of time, born of a virgin under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law, but he's given us his Holy Spirit that even today we cry in this present tense, Abba, Father, as your children who live between the already and the not yet, as we reflect upon what Christ has done, we reflect upon what Christ is now doing as he intercedes and makes intercession for us at your right hand, as he pleads his merits, as he pleads his obedience, both active and passive for us. And Father, we look forward to the great destiny, the great Sabbath that yet remains for us. Oh, Father, help us to be faithful. Enable us by your grace to be overcomers in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.